Please be seated. Good evening to you. Book of Proverbs tonight, chapter 2. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Proverbs, just began last week, barely began, didn't we? Just scratched the surface. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and wave to them. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and no sense listening to the Bible teaching without also seeing it right with your own eyes in the Bible. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. So we pick things up in chapter 2, and in chapter 2, uh, Solomon writes of God's wisdom in two aspects. He speaks of it as a treasure, and he speaks of it as a protection. And so he begins speaking of the wisdom of God as a treasure. He said, my son, and, and he is writing to his son, and the same way in the imagery is used here, he's imparting godly wisdom to his son. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is all uh, the reason that that's there is that God wants us to read this book as either a son or a daughter, as, a, as our Heavenly Father speaking to us. My son, if you receive my words, and we notice that word receive, and treasure, and there's another strong word concerning God's wisdom, treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom, another strong word, and apply, there's another strong word, your heart to understanding. Yes, if you will cry out. So we've got a strength of someone that is longing for God's wisdom. One of the great uh, things for producing a hunger within our heart for God's wisdom is to live under our own wisdom for a period of time. And uh, I, I didn't think I was uh, terribly smart for very long as an adult. Um, I committed my life, got going with the Lord, I think it was about the age of 25. So I had a few years where I thought, okay, I think I know how to navigate all of this, lived under my own wisdom. Nothing could have been more empty or more frustrating, as the Bible says that it is, than that. And so the longing for God's wisdom... No, I, I, since the time I've been born again, I was never terribly impressed with myself, but certainly not having become born again, seeing that what the quality of life that God produces versus the quality of life our wisdom produces. And when we, we recognize that from our own lives, Lord, I gave it my best shot. I tried hard, as hard as I could. It was a crash and burn or it was just so empty and nothing. And now, Lord, I want your wisdom on how to live life. If you cry out for discernment, verse 3, and lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And so here he tells us that the child of God should seek God's wisdom with the same fervency that a miner uh, seeks a vein of silver or gold. You, you can hardly excite a miner uh, more than when here they are, they're digging and they're uh, mining, and then here they strike an ore, a vein of silver or gold, all of the excitement, everything goes into action, and tremendous fervency with which uh, those men will then begin to attack that valuable thing called silver and gold, humanly speaking. And God says that's to be our attitude toward 
his wisdom. And it's a beautiful thing. He, he speaks of the wisdom of God as being a treasure. And the whole Bible's a treasure chest. That's one of the things that, how I view it in my mind. But certainly the book of Proverbs is just full of treasure. You just open it up, open it anywhere you want, and then just point your finger and you read it. And there's wisdom that's an absolute treasure in life. And the wisdom of God will make us richer in life than silver or gold can ever make uh, a human being. So the fervency with which we are to seek uh, God's wisdom, every word, every uh, uh, proverb here that speaks of His wisdom is a spiritual nugget that is intended to make us rich. And so this is the attitude of uh, seeking after wisdom and the wisdom that we are, uh, the, the manner in which we are to seek wisdom because wisdom makes us uh, 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 rich in a way that money never can. I think about, just think about the aspect of peace. We'll talk about it in a couple of minutes here too. Silver and gold can never give you peace. Silver and gold can never give you peace concerning your past, can never provide the forgiveness of sins, can never provide the confidence of a future in heaven. Silver and gold can never in and of itself, no matter how much in the whole wide world that you have of it, it can never ever in and of itself allow you to put your head on a pillow at the end of the day and fall asleep in peace. But a life lived in accordance with the wisdom of God provides that. And so, you know, one of the things, the good things that has happened in this kind of economic shaking that we've been in the whole wide world for several years now is that for the person who's wanting to learn and needing to learn, it's just a huge, it was a huge wake-up call, certainly to my generation and I think to the whole wide world. Uh, and an ex- God just simply exposed silver and gold for what it cannot supply us with certainly can't supply us with security. I mean, I know so many people, I, the, the, the portfolio was, the, everybody's portfolio, even if your portfolio was two quarters. But this, and the whole idea is for us to look and realize, wow, there is something that's found in wisdom can never be found in silver and gold. So it is a treasure, but it's also a protection for the Lord, verse 6, gives wisdom. From his mouth came knowledge and understanding. That's where this wisdom comes from. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. And so the uh, wisdom of God, it protects us. It provides a, a shield in, in our life. Think about what obedience to God's Word has protected us from as Christians. Think about just obeying His wisdom, what mental damage we have been delivered from. Emotional damage, spiritual damage, physical damage. God's wisdom protects us. Not just physically. We think of protection in terms of physical most often. But God's wisdom protects our heart. It protects our mind. It protects our bodies. It protects our relationship with God. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. I am so thankful for what 
the Word of God protects me from wasting my life involving in or the just the train wreck that uh, man's wisdom puts so many people on. He guards, so it's not only a shield, but it guards us. He guards the path of justice as, as the origin of wisdom and pre- preserves the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. And so here is the protection that God's word, wisdom provides us with. And then in verse 10, he begins to give us examples of what God's wisdom protects us from. And one of the greatest things that it protects us from is the wrong kind of people in life. And we need to be protected from the wrong kind of people in life. Well, I all kind of like to think that everybody's nice and everybody's wonderful and, you know, you shouldn't look with any kind of a critical eye toward one group of people or, you know, in their activities and we're in such a non-judgmental, um, politically correct age. We're committing suicide, uh, you know, culturally and socially in the, this country on things because... We're afraid to say, no, that's wicked and that's evil anymore. Well, you're not afraid to say that. I'm not afraid to say that related to the Bible. But the culture's become that. No, there are people that are evil. There are people that are bad. They're bad people. And they can be saved and they can be changed, and that's God's business. But there are people that we need to be protected from. They're that dangerous. They're that bad of an influence. And wisdom, God's wisdom, teaches us how to avoid the wrong kinds of people. And the first thing that he does here is he tells us that his wisdom will protect us from being seduced by wicked men to join them in their life of sin or their sin-filled life. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, what a beautiful line, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of the evil. There are evil people in this world. From the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of unrighteousness, uprightness, who walk in the ways of darkness. People walk, choose to walk in the way of darkness. Every person that hears the gospel and rejects that gospel and rejects the light, Jesus says, they don't reject me for philosophical reasons. They don't reject me for intellectual reasons. They have a love of some darkness in their life that they're not willing to give up in order to follow me. This is the God that sees our thoughts and knows them before we think them. He he knows what we're going to say before we say. He knows people inside and out. And that's just the way that it is. There's darkness And here are people who are committed to darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. The wicked are their heroes. And uh, we see so much of the entertainment today, isn't it? Now it's, I mean, in the olden, olden, olden days, the guy with the white hat always won at the end. I mean, righteousness prevailed. Uh, God, country, apple pie, whatever, you know. And, and then now the heroes are very dark. And the heroes are, uh, they're these, so often now these mixtures of good and bad. And it's all an indoctrination that goes on. Or even where the people that are made cult heroes within the culture are evil people. And 
Uh, and so here's this kind of person who rejoices in doing evil and they, they delight in the perversity of the wicked whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. And so it, it is intended to protect us from that kind of person. And it's a good protection. God's wisdom sets up a great wall between us and us getting involved uh, in their life and in their lifestyle. And then it, second, beginning in verse 16, the second kind of uh, person that it protects us from, the wrong kind of person, is the uh, wicked women. So you have the wicked men and men here trying to pull people into sin and a life of darkness. And then here he talks about the immoral woman, and it guards us from immoral women. You, and, of course, a woman can read this and, and flip it around, protects us from the immoral uh, man that works both ways. So it protects us from sexual immorality. Boy, do we need that. In the ancient world, you know, at the time of Jesus, the um, uh, sexual immorality was considered... Uh, the, the sin, the being singular great, the singular great sin of the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews had the law and the prophets. They had the Old Testament, and that made such a strong stand against sexual immorality, um, a strong stand for marriage, that sexual immorality, uh, though it existed among the Jews and, and certainly became very bad before they went into captivity to the Assyrians and, and then to the Babylonians. So, but they had this barrier. They, they lived above the Gentile uh, world. I mean, if we didn't have God's Word to teach us about um, how... Uh, sexuality is to be expressed, how he, what he's created it for, um, the confines in which it's to be expressed, how it's healthy, uh, where it becomes sin and where it becomes bondage and all. And the Gentile world was, apart from the Bible, left up to kind of figure that out, out on their own. And how did they figure it out on their own? Feels good, do it. I mean, that's not, that's not like new. I mean, nobody was like really smart in the 60s. If it feels good doing it, it's the history of the Gentile world for 6,000 years. And, and so here is this needed instruction related to uh, being sexually pure, avoiding the sexually immoral person in the sense of taking on their immorality and certainly involving ourselves in uh, sin with them. And so he uses a woman as an example. He is talking to his son, so it's natural. This God's wisdom is intended to deliver you from the immoral woman from the seductress who flatters with her word. And so it's good to know. I don't need to tell you know, those of you who are um, under the age of uh, 85 um, that this is a sexually charged culture that we live in. And um, sexual immorality for, among both men and women has been... A, you know, it's been prevalent for forever, you know, it's just the way that it is. But typically it's always been more prevalent toward the man than, than the woman. And uh, so today we see a kind of a situation um, in mo- more recent years where sexual immorality is just accepted within the culture and even more accepted by um, the younger generation. I mean, just hooking up is nothing, you know, on things. And sometimes people have a sexual relationship with one another and they don't even consider it sex because they're not married. 
or they're not in love with one another. It was just something you did. I mean, like you turn on a light or you turn on the TV, you want to kill an hour or two, and then it's just like this. We're just like animals, you know. And and so uh, this is... You know, the way that it, that it is, here she is, she's a seductress. Women are as, about as bad as men nowadays. And um, I remember, well, I won't get into it. We've got our, our age limit is 12 and up, and I've got to be careful in the book of Proverbs and the book of Solomon. Uh, I mean, the, not, uh, you know, so... Listen, I'm just going to begin my sentences uh, tonight, and then you just fin- I'll just end them with you now, and you just finish them in your mind. That way I, I will have uh, preached the sermon, and then you will have heard the sermon you wanted to hear. So we're here to help you on that. So she flatters with her words. And, um, and see, he's got, a, he's got a young son here, and he, he's got to wake that son up to the ways of the world. And he's got to be careful about it because he doesn't want to educate him in it too much. But he's got to give him enough so he just doesn't head out of the house at 18 years old and he doesn't know the first, he doesn't know that there are sexually immoral people out there just waiting to make a victim of him or her. So he's got to tell him something. And, and that speaks of the fact that this woman is, uh, flatters with her words. And that's one of very, a man is a sucker for that kind of thing. And they've got to be careful of that. Oh, you are, you are so handsome. Where have you been all my life? You're so strong. You're so smart. We think to ourselves, oh, nobody's ever told me that before. And we think it's because we are so smart, but they've all overlooked it. It never dawns on us that they never said it because we aren't smart. And that she's a seductress telling us something in order to sleep with us. And so then there's this, then, you know, we hear the flattery. She knows how to talk with men. She knows men very, very well. There are men who know women very, very well. They know how to get them emotionally long before they ever get them physically. They know how the whole game works. I mean, they know women better than they know men, and there are um, women who know men better than they know women, and they are a woman. And so... You know, the flattery comes across, and, oh, my wife never tells me that. She's never noticed that in me before. What else have you noticed about me? And the woman will be happy to tell you. And so much of it is all mental. It's all emotional long before it becomes physical. And this kind of person knows how to do that. She forsakes the companion of of her youth, and so... She's unfaithful to her husband, and that's one of the great things to ask ourselves before um, engaging in sexual immorality. And um, it's interesting, you, you read all of the statistics today, and the divorce rate among men and women who live together before they get married is much higher, significantly higher, than those who don't live together. You'd think, wow, they'd work, iron out all their problems living together, but it doesn't happen. Once the sexual relationship is lit up in a relationship, once that begins, it becomes the focus of the relationship. So people come in for counseling and 
and they want to get married, and we begin to probe a little bit on how well you know this person and all, and they think to themselves again because of the culture, what do you mean, how well do I know them? We've been living together for three years, and we've had sex a million times in those three years. How? Of course we know each other. That doesn't mean we know that person at all. We know them physically. But what happens is once that sexual relationship is begun, then all development of the relationship as it should occur emotionally, intellectually, the two lives really binding together in a deep way spiritually, all of those things go by the wayside. And then people enter into marriage thinking they're very, very mature, um, very, they know each other very, very well, and they don't realize until they get into the marriage, I har- we are hardly connected intellectually. We are hardly connected emotionally. We are hardly connected spiritually, zero spiritually. And, and it's like a shock to people that way. And, and so here, uh, the, again, the, the, God's plan, His way is the best way. And in order for us to then head into marriage, his way, pure, chaste, and then here our lives are bound together, and then the physical relationship is a blessing of two lives that are, you know, are, are really uh, united together in, in every kind of way. And so she, um, and it's fascinating too, because I was talking with one of the guys in the church here today, and he's just reaffirming again what the statistics are saying. This is a secular world talking about this, and how the secular world even recognizes that the, that it is a disaster for people to live together before becoming married, sexually active with one another. This is the world. I mean, it's taken like since 60 years of the sexual revolution for us to begin to pay the piper for that wisdom, so-called wisdom. And even the world is beginning to realize this is all wrong and upside down. But here she forgets, uh, the com- forsakes the companion of her youth, and it's a good thing to think about concerning sexual immorality, and that is that if, if she's willing to be unfaithful to her partner or unfaithful to her husband, then what makes me think that I'm so special that she's going to be faithful to me or vice versa with a man two years down the road or six months down the road or three months down the road. People are what what they are and what they live. And so she forsakes the companion of her youth. She forgets the covenant of her God because she knows that she's got to choose God or she's got to choose sexual immorality and she chooses uh, sexual immorality. That's what she wants to worship. And then God says, for her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who, uh, who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. And so to become involved with a sexually immoral person, certainly with a prostitute and all, it puts you on a, a path or on a slide that is toward uh, the grave. Now today, one of the things that has kind of enabled what's called the sexual revolution, which is a revolution in immorality, which um, 
the world is paying a terrible price for, not just financially, but again emotionally, mentally, physically, on a lot of different levels. But in those days, they didn't have, you know, penicillin and antibiotics. So if a person got a uh, sexually transmitted disease, um, when you got that, that was a death sentence. That was it. You were going to die, and everybody knew you were going to die. There was no cure for it. Now, today, we have uh, drugs to cure people of sexually transmitted uh, diseases. Uh, but in those days, that's only a recent development. In those days, to pick that up by getting involved with a sexually immoral person, it was a death sentence. It would lead you into physical death, and um, uh, but also into a greater death, a spiritual death. And we still have diseases today related to um, sexually transmitted diseases that are incurable. We know of no cure related to them. And there are certain diseases like AIDS that you can get and uh, sexually transmitted, and that is a death sentence. They can extend life, but there's no cure related uh, to that. The bigger issue and the bigger death issue that he's talking about here really surrounds surrounding sexual immorality is the uh, spiritual consequence of it. The person who lives a sexually immoral life as a choice is merely revealing the fact that they are not born again, that they do not have a relationship with God. It isn't the sexual immorality that is going to send them to hell one day. Um, it's the fact that their sexual immorality reveals the fact that they are not yet born again. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I want to read you a little passage from there. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those that practice these sins as a, as a lifestyle, it's an indicated indication that they're not born again yet. And such were some of you, Paul said to this church. I mean, they were they're Christians coming out of Corinth. They'd been involved in everything, very sophisticated in terms of sin, congregation. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so the problem, the great problem with um, the uh, sexual... Uh, again, immorality that prevails today is that um, is not just the, the greatest thing isn't just the physical problems that can come into our lives as a result of it, but it reveals a major spiritual problem in a person's life, that they haven't settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. They need to be born again. I remember one time I was teaching a Bible study. When we were first starting many years ago, the Calvary Chapel here, and there were quite a, there was a fair number of people that were driving up from Merced at the time. And so I would go down on the midweek and teach a midweek study down in Merced. And I began to talk about this whole angle of things, that a lifestyle of sexual immorality, uh, living together, shacking up and all this kind of stuff, and what it represents and how God sees it and that whole thing. And two of like the nicest women in the whole world previously you know, attending the Bible study. They got in my face after that message and wanted to know what in the world. And, and I mean, they really read me the riot act. Turned out they were both living with their boyfriends, but loved to come to a Bible study. 
absolutely confident they're on their way to heaven, that they're living the Christian life, the whole thing, didn't see the, con- in, the consistent inconsistency of it at all. And I said, listen, let me show I just show you in the Word. What can I say on that? This is, this is what he says. But that's the danger of the sexual immorality in our culture. Is like all sin, is it hooks people and it pulls them further away from salvation. And the immoral man and the immoral woman is playing a part uh, in that. And so he says, verse 20, So you may walk in the way of goodness and to keep the paths of righteousness. This is what wisdom does for us. It steers us clear of these kind of men and these kind of women. For the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth, and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. And over time, always righteousness ends up prevailing in human history, and wickedness always ends up being judged. It is the cycle. It is the cycle just like the book of Judges where sin begins to prevail mightily in human history and ultimately because darkness cannot, um, it does not have a capacity uh, to, to sustain itself. It must live off of something healthy. It's a parasite. It can't, it can't exist on its own. So once it overtakes the host... And, and crosses a critical mass where now most of the world is in darkness or most of the world is sin-filled, then the consequences become so great because it's not the way to live. It's not the way we were created to live. It collapses, and then righteousness is once again taken seriously again. God's Word, His standards, His definitions of right and wrong are taken seriously again. It rebirths. Something beautiful gets started again, and then this big, beautiful, healthy thing gets started, and then right away wickedness and evil starts to attach to it again until the whole cycle's repeated over and over. But always you see it. It's always happening that righteousness, the right way, the right way to live, it always has a resurrection. It always comes back into favor. It may, it may not be in a person's lifetime. But in history, that's the cycle, and ultimately, wickedness does collapse under its own uh, under its own weight because it has to have a host uh, to uh, draw all of its uh, to live off of and to leech off of. In chapter three, uh, we have the blessings of of wisdom, the rewards of wisdom. He said, "My son." Do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace will be added to you. In general, and so a lot of the problems, Proverbs are speaking uh, generally and they're not necessarily a, a promise specifically to in every single circumstance. So in general... Uh, living a righteous life and a holy life in accordance with God's wisdom, it, it, in general, it leads to a longer life. You say, what are the exceptions? Well, um, in parts of the world today where there is great persecution against Christians. It's, uh, it's a terrible what's going on in Egypt right now towards Christians. And they're living a righteous life. They're living faithfully for the Lord and all the Islamic persecution against them. So there can be these seasons. And Jesus spoke of the fact that as we live for the Lord, 
we live a life, a righteous life, that the world can become so evil around us that it will end up in a short life as a result of that. But when the world is what it ought to be and not kind of an extreme condition like that, obedience to God's wisdom tends to long life and a longer life than the life of the wicked. And I, I would love to see the statistics on that, but I don't need to see the statistics on that. People that walk with God, again, the dangers that we are kept out of by simply obeying God's Word, the risk behaviors that we, sinful behaviors that we, uh, we are rescued from, um, so, uh, so many things that we avoid that bring on an early death that, that come to those that live in rebellion to God's Word. You think about the physical illnesses today that have uh, their origin in sin. Think about addictions to drug and to alcohol and, and the diseases and the early death that are associated with those things that the righteous will steer clear of. Think about the diseases that are associated with sexual immorality. Think about um, so many of the accidents that can occur where people are just doing something crazy in wickedness or crimes that are being committed and all of these things. And it leads to a very a much shorter uh, life expectancy. And so it's the way to a longer life. It's kind of funny how people, they're in the gym. <laughs> and I'm one of them. Listen, I'm not putting them down. But you got people thing it I mean and they they got their they take their vitamin C and they make sure that it's with bioflavonoids and they eat here and it's gotta be organic on the thing here and they don't do this and they exercise twenty six hours a day and they then they do all of these different things and everybody's looking to, you know, get an extra month out of their life. And I'm not putting it down related to that. And then, but to do all of those things and then live a life and contrary to God's wisdom. You can do what it, all you're doing is just, as they say, rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. It's just, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> the, the key to long life is, is to know the Lord and to obey His, His word. Verse 3, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Internalize them. Let people see that you obey God and His wisdom. Let people see what God's wisdom does to a person on the inside, the kind of person it creates, what kind of a a person God's wisdom produces on the outside, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and in the sight of men. And so God's wisdom produces with us a favor with God and a favor with people. You believe a person that is a godly person is a righteous person. People are going to like you. People are going to, you're going to move in as a neighbor and they're going to go, oh, we've got a good neighbor. I mean, it's not going to become like, they're not going to be cooking meth next door or whatever the thing might be. There's not going to be people coming all night long to come and pick up their drugs every five minutes all the way through the night and then not a peep there while, during the day while everybody else is working. And then we go to try to get sleep again and the parade begins all over again. And, and there's something about the fact that God's wisdom produces a quality of life that people like you and they want to be around you and they want to do business with you. And they trust you. 
And those are, one of, those are some of the things that make a person rich in life. And then in verse 5, we have God's wisdom produces a God-directed life. Verses 5 and 6 are two of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. If you've never read them before, it is my privilege to introduce them to you tonight. I would say there are a lot of Christians who have what they call a life verse, a verse that God has given to them when they became a Christian and they feel like this is the verse that God gave me, knowing who I am and how he's going to use my life and this is what he wants me to always come back to. It's kind of home plate for me. And I would say of all the people that I know where they've told me what their life verse is, this is probably the most predominant one that I've heard through the years. And here is this wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. the The most important thing to a child of God in the whole wide world is to have our paths directed by God. So I'm going to deal with these two verses just working our way backwards. To know that we are in His will. We, you can be living in a situation that is hell on earth, but if you know you are there in God's will, there is a peace that no one can touch. You can live in the most extravagant or the most wealthy or the most however the world defines success in this, in this world. And if I am not in God's will, there is no capacity to enjoy it as a child of God. So ultimately, what happens in our life as Christians is all we care about is what is His will. So that's one of the reasons these two verses are so important to us as Christians is because, again, the old saying, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's how important it is. So how in the world do we live a life where God is directing our paths rather than us directing our paths or the culture directing our paths and, and, and in their own wisdom. And he tells us it's made of three things. Number one, trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. And this is just surrender to the Lord. And, and this is just to come uh, to the Lord and basically say to him, uh, just wholeheartedly, confidently, Lord, I want your will for my life above all else. I want your will for my life a thousand times more than I want my own will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lord, I want your will for my life. And then lean not on your own understanding. Trying to, one of the things that can keep us from walking in that path is leaning on our own understanding, thinking we're smart enough to handle this situation. And the cure for that is we look and say, well, take, sometimes a lot of Christians live this way. Yeah, take, take the big things to God, but don't be talking about everything. I mean, didn't he give you a brain? Didn't he give you a brain? <laughs> yeah, but I find that if I don't take everything to him, casting all of my cares on him, the Bible says, then I can take a small thing and it ends up becoming gigantic. And so it ends up going to him anyway as it relates to prayer. And that's my wisdom always makes things a mess. So it is a thing of, Lord, I want your will more than anything else, whatever it is. 
Please, just let me know your will. Number two, I reject my own wisdom. I recognize that I am my own greatest enemy to experiencing your will in my life. My capacity or my attempt to try and figure it out on my own. This is called Jacob in the Old Testament for a more in-depth study related to it. And then not leaning on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him. To say, Lord... I acknowledge you in this situation. You have a will. You have a purpose for my life. You describe in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that your will is good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. I acknowledge that. I want that, Lord, that will. And so I ask you for it. And the greatest way to acknowledge him in all of our ways, I don't know of a better way than to just simply pray. And so elevating God's will above Anything else, my own will, wanting that predominantly, not allowing myself to get into the mix and try and figure it out for myself, and and then um, in all of my ways acknowledging Him, lifting it up to Him, asking Him for His wisdom, and then He will direct your path. A beautiful passage of Scripture. Those are, surely those are two verses everyone would want to memorize and so the Lord could bring that to our remembrance in our Christian life. And then he talks about just the health that comes with a righteous life. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil and it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. That God's way of living is the healthy way to live. And, and so would you bring the Ezekiel bread out? I'm going to sell this for $100 a loaf. So you get a lot of people get in, they get in the Levitical diet and all that kind of thing. But it's, it's, it's not talking about diet so much and all that. You don't go back to the Levitical diet and those things. But God's way to live wisdom, it translates into um, health. It's the healthy way uh, to live. Why? Because the Creator knows how we were created to live. And He's given us wisdom for how to get in line with how we've been created to live. It's interesting you talk to people that reject God. And I was just with somebody that was in this camp. And uh, I mean, it's not like we're not around people like that every day. But I mean, um, you know, significantly and... um, and they reject the Bible and they reject Christianity and they reject and it's always because there's something that God says that they don't like. They're still smarter than God. So I, I was happy to get cured of that at age 25. And so, though I still fight it every so often, I don't want to say like I've, I'm not a dummy still, I am. But... Um, that, you know, they want to do their own thing their own way. And if they come to Christ, then it means they're going to have to give this up and they don't want to give this up. And, and after all, you know, uh, you know, didn't God create all of the herbs? I mean, didn't he give us, didn't he give us a sex drive? I mean, why would he give us a sex drive if he just didn't mean us, you know, to mate with everything on two legs? I mean, what? So there's the whole thing like this that that goes on. And you just talk with somebody like that and you just say, well, you know, if you're going to reject God and you're going to reject his wisdom and his definitions of right and wrong, then why don't you just really go after it? 
not just in one or two areas of your life. Reject the whole kit and caboodle. Reject all of his definitions of right and wrong. Reject every commandment. Live in rebellion to all of it. And if that's the way to live, and you're convinced that it's the way to live, go out there and live that to the nth degree. Go do it. If you're so smart and God is so dumb, it ought to translate everywhere in life. Go do that as hard as you can do that if your life is so great. Oh, no, I can't do that. That would destroy me. Of course it would destroy you. So people just, they kind of manage it. They think, all right, I got these two areas. I can kind of maintain some kind of uh, functioning in life and just be in rebellion to God in these two areas. And they don't realize they're playing a game in their head. They're fighting. They may not even believe in God, and they're fighting against the God they don't believe in, who created them, the DNA. It's all in them. They've been made for God. And so just the fact that even sinners will not abandon themselves fully to their sin, or when they do and they find themselves in bondage to it, they they then want out of it, is a confession of the fact that God is wise and that they are not wise. And physically, it's physical health. It's the way to live. You think about, even think about um, sexual side again. And he talks about that a lot in, through this book. So don't think I'm like, what was he thinking about tonight? He's going to talk about this all the way through, really heavy through the first nine chapters on this thing. But why when there's one man and one woman who marry And then within the confines of that commitment and respect toward one another, enjoy a sexual relationship. Why are there no sexually transmitted diseases that occur unless one of them is unfaithful? But if they are faithful to one another, why no sexually transmitted diseases develop? Why does it always get developed in a sexually immoral environment? And it all communicates to us. This is the way you were created to live. This is the way the body was created to live. And all of this over here tells you that this is not the way we were created to live and that the body cannot endure that expression. And so, I mean, everything's preaching to us of the wisdom of God. And then he talks about in verse 9, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. And so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And so um, here he speaks about uh, the fact that generally speaking, a, a life of obedience to, to the Lord will end up in a life of, uh, uh, of material prosperity and that when that material prosperity occurs, that there is to be the giving uh, to the Lord to acknowledge His wisdom, His Lordship in our life. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that speaks about the importance of the child of God giving to, to God. And you know why God wants us to give to Him? He's just perpetually broke. And I borrow 50 cents and I will gladly pay you Tuesday. He just doesn't have any money and, and he needs money. Sometimes you hear it on the radio and TV. God needs you like he's never needed you before. And there's a sense in which it's, it is true because he's never needed you before. So, um, 
But that's the pitch that's given, and we just think like God's in rags up there, and come, let's take an offering, and, and his work is on the ropes, and that kind of a thing. And, and, but this godly life does translate into prosperity in general, not the way the prosperity people go with all of that. We just reject that. I remember when Karen and I uh, got saved and got going with the Lord, and I was working as a lineman for the phone company. And, I mean, we were just kind of... It, I, I was, it was a, f- a fabulous job. It was a wonderful job to get and a good-paying job. You know, it was like you could raise a family on this kind of a job. And so we got in, but they start you low, and it takes you five years to get to top pay and different things. So you're just pinching every penny and all. And then we become a Christian and then we find out that there's like this giving side to God thing. It's like, how are we going to do that, you know? And so we begin to give to the Lord and begin to support missionaries or whatever, and these different kinds of things and tithing to the church and all this kind of stuff. And it was amazing how how much God blessed and took care of all of that. Now, listen, I'm not getting you ready for an offering tonight. So just relax. But one of the things that happens is God so changes our life that places where you're just throwing money down into a a hole in the ground, all of that dries up now. And then God becomes supernaturally involved in in that. And so he asked that he would be, um, that he would be acknowledged as he blesses our life. And so when we give to him, on Sunday mornings we take an offering as a part of the worship, of our worship service. And we do that in order to express worship toward Him, to acknowledge that everything that we have has come from Him. We're giving back a portion to Him to acknowledge that. We're giving to His work. We have an interest in the kingdom of God. We want to store up uh, treasures in heaven rather than on the earth. All of those kind of things are happening. And those are wonderful dynamics that happen in our life. I know that there's lots of churches and and I remember when we first, the first, the church first started here, and um, at that time there was a lot of churches that they did not take um, like a formal offering on on Sunday morning or the Sunday evening services, and so it was like, hey, listen, the whole culture's been bombarded by money, and that God is all about money, and that's the indoctrination, and that's what they think about God and everything. So we'll just put boxes in the back, and whoever wants to give, they can give or not. So it's just like this hippy dippy, low key thing that was going. On. I'm not saying they all had that motivation, but it was just like this whole whole deal. And I just. If people want to do that, God can do that however He wants. I'm not ashamed of the offering on Sunday morning. It's one of the most exciting parts of the service. To just look and say, I honor you, Lord. I thank you for every way you have given us to worship, with our mouth, with our giving, with sacrifice. Every, he, you must call on us to give to you in this way because, not because you need the money, but because we have a need to give. And that's the key. Every time we give, we give away a little bit of our selfishness. And most of us have so much selfishness that there needs to be a lot that's given away. And I'll say this, I'll say it gently. But I'll say it without apology. A Christian who does not give to the Lord, their security is in their money and not in God. 
And that is a miserable, miserable place to live. Because money cannot provide peace and it cannot provide security. Only God can provide security in this world. And as we give to him, Lord, this is the greatest life. I can't believe that we get to live it and how you bless and how it's good. And here is, is this and I'm going to give this, uh, give this to you and to acknowledge you in this kind of a way. And there's this, there's this recognition that he is He is my security. And then to love to do that, to love that part of of the service. So I, I I just think it's a great mistake, and I think it's a great mistake in... And certainly in churches where they're just hammering, giving every week, it's like, where is the exit? That's nonsense. I'm not talking about that. But this other thing that makes it seem like it's something to be hidden or it's voluntary... It's not. It is a, the Christian life is the most prosperous way to live. You say, boy, it wasn't when the economy was booming and to live and, and to run your business by the book and, and like this and all these other shysters are out there doing everything. I hope that's not Yiddish for some profane word, but they're out there doing all of their thing like this and then, yeah, but look at the collapse. Look what it comes back to. This is the greatest life that we get to live. It does translate into material blessing, even if it's just one quarter more than before. It's not about the amount. And then the privilege of being able to say, Lord, your wisdom has produced a life even materially that I could have never produced in my own wisdom. And I just want to honor you and bless you in that. And I don't say that in any way like to get, okay, let's get going with an offering here tonight or anything like that. God has always more than supplied for the needs in here. It's a funny thing. God does so much stuff and it's like it, it, it would almost... I think about the guys that are on the board of directors that are like oversee and they pray and they're spiritual men with a gift of administration and and they are those that seek the Lord in prayer for financial decisions related to the church. It's almost criminal what they get exposed to on a monthly basis, how faithful God is, how good He is, how gracious He is, how amazing He is. And how he's been that way for 28 years in this church. And, 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 and I almost wish that you could tell the stories. We keep so many stories to ourselves. This goofy little 17 acres here out on American Avenue called Calvary Chapel of Modesto. When this thing got built way back when, you know, finished, we got, we got in a week or two before 9-11. And into this fellowship. We never asked for money once. Not once. God supplied for the whole campus to be built and then to be built out. And He just did it. And one of my prayers was, Lord, could you, not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we're proud or anything like that, but Lord, if you want to build something that is supposed to be an, an outpost of your kingdom in Modesto, California, 
We don't need a, you know, we don't, we don't need to build a monument to ourselves or anything like that. But if this is what you want to do, Lord, would you show that it can be done without hammering people for money? And the Lord did it. Absolutely did it. And it, but this building exists in this city for God's glory, even if nobody ever walks in the doors driving by it. And what it does is it expresses to the whole community the worship in the heart of God's people who fellowship here and a desire to have a place for people to come and to worship the Lord and be pointed to Him and to learn His Word. So God prospers and He, and He blesses and and there is to be that acknowledgement of it. And I just can't believe what the Lord is able to do with, with uh, you know, in, with physically, materially what He does in our life is we just acknowledge Him and we obey His Word. I think about the, the tithing side of things. And by the way, none of this was prepared. I, it's just a thing that's on my heart. Every once in a while it comes up in the Scriptures and we deal with it so irregularly that it's important to do that once in a while. But I remember hearing when I was a young Christian and people talk about a tithe and, you know, 10% and the whole and how and what and all. And, and then I heard somebody say, well, why don't you see if God can do more with, ni- with uh, 90%, if you can do more with 90% with God than 100% without God. That's the truth. God just prospers. I don't know all of the laws behind it. I don't know all of the whys, the wherefores, all the everything. I just know that it's true, and it uh, re, um, translates into a blessing. We're not going to finish chapter 3 here tonight, but I don't want to finish on giving. So we'll go into verse uh, 11, and let's talk about uh, chastening. Uh, so my son... <laughs> so... Hmm. Not for very long, but let's just at least read the two verses. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, and whom, and just as the Father, the Son in whom he delights. And of course, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes this passage to remind us that God does chasten us, he does discipline us. But the, but the two great reactions to God's discipline in our life is to either um, be discouraged by it or to despise it. And when a person, when God disciplines us, and I hope that, uh, I know that all of us who are children of God, that we're uh, disciplined. I remember hearing one pastor who I love so much, he's a good friend of mine, and he talked about God chastening him. He says, yes. God measured the earth with a span, and he also uses that span to give me a spanking on my backside, and that's kind of how it does. Not all of us, he's going to discipline us, and he's going to chasten us. But if we allow it, if we're discouraged by it, or we become, uh, we, we uh, fight against it in some kind of a way, we despise it, then we are misunderstanding his discipline. And wisdom, God's wisdom, tells us how to interpret his chastening in our life. He chastens me. I'll tell you, he chastens me. I love it. I hate it. My flesh hates it. I want to make that clear. My flesh hates it, but my flesh doesn't know anything about what is up or down or anything. 
but my spirit loves it. And part of God's chastening or His discipline, it doesn't speak just of correction, but it speaks of training. And so the idea is a coach. A coach will discipline an athlete and will push that athlete far beyond that athlete, the limits that athlete will place upon himself. And that athlete, because he'll, sometimes he'll place those limits on himself, he will never become the athlete or she that they would ever otherwise become. A coach notices in them what they cannot notice in themselves, and, he, and that coach will discipline them, push them to greatness, to their full potential. And that's what God's wisdom does in our life. It causes us... So God doesn't want a single one of us to settle for a second best life. And so He chastens us in order to do that. And His wisdom keeps us from... Helps us to understand the chastening. So we realize, ah, God doesn't want me to settle into a life that I would settle into that's inferior. He wants the very best for me. And that's why He won't let me alone. And He makes me clean up my room, spiritually speaking, and take out the garbage and all. We think about teenagers. i got to find out something now. And God goes, oh, i got to deal with you every day. The same thing, you know, just different uh, issues. And, and so, but, he, but that's what He wants for us. And, I, and I've spoken about it before when we're in the book of Hebrews. And I used to play a lot of basketball, and uh, I really loved that sport. And um, it, it kept me out of a lot of trouble. God really used that. And it was a fun game for me, and I was halfway good at it. And so it, it, was, it was great. I only, in all the years that I played that game, I only had one good coach. I had several coaches, but only one good coach who, man, he pushed us Wow. Other people complain, man, he's so hard, he's so every I couldn't wait to get to practice. But I live as a basketball player, I live with the fact that I was never pushed to my full potential because I because of the coaches that I had, except for one, never pushed us in that direction. I realize I never known what I might have done. So I know I would have never been able to dunk from the free throw line. Sometimes I dream about that, though. In the middle of the, in the middle of a dream, must be that rapid eye movement or something where the endorphins are loosed or something. And I got, I got that ball just cocked back here. And I mean, somebody's coming across right here. I'm going to break their forearm over that rim. There is no way. You're crazy. And go in and, then I wake up and I realize that, you know, I've got to put both feet on the ground and then slide sideways in order to get up, you know, out of the bed. <laughs> Reality hits me all over again. But the beautiful thing about it is the Holy Spirit works in our life in such a way that when we get to the end of our Christian life, He pushes. Man, can He push but we come to the end of our life and we'll never say, oh, I wish I would have had someone push me spiritually into greatness to see what God might have done. And the Holy Spirit will be faithful to do that. But it takes God's wisdom to help us understand that when He does it, it's because He loves us, verse 12, and because He is, we are a child of His that He delights in. Let's stand together and we'll pray.